Uh, good morning, Creekside. Uh, I'm Mark. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, man, so so good to be with you guys. Happy Father's Day, and um, if you're visiting with us, as Nathan said, welcome. We're glad to have you here. Uh, on the chair in front of you, there's a little QR code that you can scan, and we'd love to kind of, you can find out the events, and we'd love to have you fill out a little thing on there to connect. Um, we'll reach out and let you know what the, this church is about um, and uh, what it means to be part of this family. I, uh, one, one thing that we do here, so we're going through the book of First uh, and Second Thessalonians. We're in Second Thessalonians now. And we, we occasionally will kind of um, do things uh, thematically uh, for short periods of time, but our main thing that we like to do on Sundays is walk through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, walking through. And what that does is it, um, it, it gets us into what, what the Word of God actually says, um, but what, what it sometimes leads to, right, is you get to a place where you're like, okay, this is a hard passage, okay? It's like, it's a tough one, and we get there, and we can say, okay, well, what do we do? Do we skip it? Like, nah, you can't skip it, right? You can't, you can't, if you're going to be like honest and committed to the word of God, you can't skip it, and so you have to do it. And I, what I love about that is it makes, um, it, it keeps us attuned to the whole heart of God, right? Uh, it keeps us honest, and we're not just doing the happy things. And it also, uh, what it does is it keeps the emphases the same as God's emphases with these things. So when God says, you know, love, 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 love a bunch, then we get to just like, like bask in that and just embrace it, right? And then when he says something harder, then we, we also get to hear it, but we hear it as often as God says it in the word of God, and that's beautiful. So anyways, this, this morning is, um, is, a, is a toughie, but I'm going to ask you first, what is the greatest song ever written? Yeah, that's it. Uh, Lacrimosa by Mozart. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, most beautiful song ever. So I'm going to have Scott, if you could just play just a, a little bit of this. Um, written in 1791. Just listen to the beauty of this. Is that not lovely? So this is written, written uh, so long ago and written for a funeral. Okay, that's the idea. It's part of his requiem is for a funeral. And the words are in Latin, but they're saying, um, mournful that day uh, when uh, a, a guilty man rises from the ashes to be judged, okay? That's the, that's the, all this beautiful stuff. So what I think is interesting, go ahead, you can kill it, Scott, but um, what I love about it is it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's so lovely. And, um, and then the, the picture is, it's part of this, like, the Requiem is like this couple hour long epic piece of music. So imagine going to a funeral and uh, you sit there for two hours listening to this, like, massive, epic thing about Judgment Day and whatever. So many of the most, like, um, impactful works of art throughout history have been on the theme of Judgment Day. And I think that we have this sort of fascination with it. Now, today, it's become uh, less popular, which seems weird to say. Like, was Judgment ever popular? I don't know, but people made these epic works of art about it. Um, today, it sits ill at ease with us, but I think we still have this fascination. And so I'm, I, on, on the one hand, man, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, this passage doesn't totally reflect my heart in the way that some other passages do. I don't know if that makes sense, and I, I hope that doesn't sound too weird, but it's like, it took me a while, let me just say it this way, it took me a while to come to terms with this passage, because it's, it's, it's harder and it's heavier, um, and yet I'm so thankful for this week to have been able to wrestle with it and to sit in it and to hear. I think I've been able to see God's heart in it, and I'm excited to kind of share that with you guys today. So if you have your Bible, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, otherwise I'm going to put it on the screen and we're just going to dive right in. Oh, for context, he's talked in the previous section. He starts with a this, okay? So previous context, he's talked about how this community is this community of love, and they've been enduring in the midst of persecution. So he says in verse 5, this, this endurance of, of persecution, is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, which you are also suffering. 
since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So happy Father's Day, folks. Um, we're just going to dive into this whole thing. Um, so what he's talking about is he's saying, okay, there's this community of love. And he's, he's in the first couple of verses of 2 Thessalonians, he's writing back to this little church again. This church, remember, this community, Paul planted a church. He got chased off because the, the people around were just so upset at um, Paul preaching the gospel. And so Paul leaves this little church there that's thriving in their love for each other and for the people outside. So he's constantly saying, I'm thanking God so much for this love that you have for each other. But meanwhile, they're just being poured on in all this opposition, persecution from the society around them. And so Paul is writing to them and saying, um, man, you, you're enduring this suffering. Your, your love for each other has grown. And in the midst of this, I see you living according to the kingdom of God in this setting. And everybody piling on, he's saying, I, I, I feel like compelled to say, hey, this is why we need, this is evidence of the need for God's righteous judgment on this thing, right? Because they, this church is being unrighteously judged, if that makes sense. They're being attacked and persecuted, even though all they're doing is loving each other and trying to follow the Lord's commands. Um, they're here in this setting. He's saying, we need God's righteous judgment, right? This big picture thing. And so God kind of steps in through Paul and says, hey, uh, it shouldn't be this way. You shouldn't be suffering like you're suffering now, and it won't always be this way. And so God, what God does is he kind of rules uh, in favor of this little community of love, and he rules against these oppressors that are coming against him. And so in order to do that, he talks about the Lord returning. This is what will happen when Christ comes back again. And there's basically two things that he says are going to happen when Christ comes. The first, he says, um, in verse 7, he says that he's going to come and he's going to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. So when God comes, he's going to come to this little community of love, and, and Christ is going to return. He's going to say, okay, just rest, relief, like the, the oppression's over, like enter into the joy of your master, that kind of a thing. And so there's this picture of rest. Uh, they've been living in the kingdom of God, and, and he's saying that's what you're going to enter, enter into, and it's going to be beautiful. But the, the flip side, and this is the harder part, is he also says in verse 6 that what he's going to do is he's going to consider it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. All right, so there's some poetic justice here. Okay, there's these afflictors, these people that are, like, causing this affliction. He's saying, don't worry, they themselves are going to be afflicted in the end, right? It's kind of like what they've given, they're now going to receive themselves. And so there's this, um, I think, poetic justice. There's this sense where Paul's trying to encourage them in the midst of it. But he does it by talking about how, yeah, they've been afflicting, they will be afflicted later. And my first thought is, um, what about Jesus who says, turn the other cheek, right? What, like, what, where does that go in a passage like this? This is what I've been wrestling with this week is, where, where do you see, you know, Jesus said that, the, the Old Testament pattern, there was like that, that promise of like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? When someone does harm, you do equal and opposite harm to them, and that levels it out. That's justice, right? But then Jesus comes, and he says, look, when someone is, uh, slaps you on the face, turn to them the other cheek also, right? When they, when they are, uh, oppress you, like bless the people that oppress you. Uh, Paul says in Romans 12, don't seek vengeance. He says, bless, um, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. He says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So there's this like thought of, okay, we as Christians, we as followers of Jesus are told, don't, uh, don't, don't retaliate. Um, don't return evil for evil. When someone hits you, like turn the other cheek, pray for them, bless those who persecute you. So how is 
God then operating in this way uh, with this idea of uh, returning vengeance on those who have done harm when he tells us to be forgiving. And, and, and the thing I've realized this week is the logic in this passage actually works really well. The logic in this passage, Paul's saying this in Romans 12, that like, don't avenge yourselves, but what? Leave it to the wrath of God. Because God's saying, vengeance is mine. I will repay. So why is he saying, don't you, community of faith, don't you return vengeance on anybody? Don't you retaliate against anyone? Why? Because he's saying, I am ultimately the judge. I am the one that's just. I'm the one that's going to sort it all out in the end. You don't need to take that into your own hands because I've got a handle on the whole thing. And so that is the big picture of this whole thing, the logic of it that I think works really well. Because see, it's, it's, it's actually, um, as much as we kind of resist the idea of a, like the justice of God, the wrath of God, the vengeance of God, as much as we resist that, we need the universe to be just ultimately. Like that's actually really significant and really important to look at people that have been the victims of oppression and to say, yeah, just forget about it, right? It doesn't really matter anyways. We'll get through it all in the end. Like that's actually not okay. The universe needs to be ultimately just, and that means we need God to be ultimately just. It's interesting to me that today is, uh, when this passage comes up, it's also Juneteenth. Um, So June 19th um, was the, the day that, so um, the, the slaves in the South were freed through the Emancipation Proclamation. And um, in Texas, actually, the slaves were, I guess the, the, um, the slave owners must have just forgotten to tell the slaves that they were free. And so another, like, year and a half goes by until finally the Union soldiers come in and say, hey, you guys are freed. You don't have to stay here anymore. And um, so June 19th, that's the date that this was kind of um, came to them. And so there's this reminder. That's, that's what the, like, uh, reminder and celebration of Juneteenth is. The, the reminder is you can't look at a community that has been experienced slavery like that, right, and, and a lack of justice on so many levels for so long in so many ways and simply say, hey, but it's fine. Let's just, like, forget about it. Let's just move on. Let's just, let's just like, it doesn't really matter. The suffering you went through doesn't really matter anyways. No, the reminder is actually justice is so important. Justice is so significant. We can't just brush it aside. And this is a reminder that ultimately at the end of it all, we don't, we don't retaliate. We don't return evil for evil. We don't come in with vengeance and judgment because ultimately God has that handled and he knows way better than we do. Now, here's the thing I want to say before we go even too far into this. Um, there's one thing that changes the justice of God in a sense. There, there's like an asterisk that comes with it. So there is, there is when we do evil in this life, right? When we like hurt each other, which we all do, right? We all are sinning against each other. We hurt ourselves. We hurt the people around us. When we do that, there is consequences, right? There's, there's, there's justice coming from that. But the thing that changes us is that there is this good news, this gospel that comes in and says, hey, yes, you have oppressed each other. Yes, you've hurt each other. Yes, you're hurting yourself and you're going against the law of God and all these things. But here's the good news. Jesus died. Jesus paid the punishment for our sins so that we don't have to. So if we are connected to Jesus, there is this grace and mercy. And so every harsh thing that this passage says, everything that's difficult and that offends our sense of justice, if we step back, we can remember, okay, but meanwhile, God is offering us this path to full forgiveness full healing, full rec- reconciliation to where, to where the Bible can even say there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so in the midst of these warnings, there's also the reminder of that goodness, that fact that, man, I deserve uh, judgment as much as anybody else in this entire universe that's ever lived, and yet through Jesus, there's this offer. What this passage is speaking to is those that resist that offer of grace, of forgiveness, of the gospel. That's what he's really talking about here. 
So to describe this, he goes into this really intense uh, imagery, and he's pulling it. So in verses like 7 and 8, he's pulling it from all over the Bible. Anytime they start talking about the end and judgment, the biblical authors just start like borrowing and stealing from each other all over the place. And so there's all this imagery of um, like you see the, uh, the plagues kind of referenced in Egypt. Like there's pictures of that. In Daniel, first half of Daniel is this like really amazing narrative story and the second half of Daniel is just weird as all get out like it's just wild and all these visions that he gets and everything and they're just these New Testament writers in Revelation and in passages like this for Paul they're just stealing from um, these pictures in Daniel these images Isaiah gives us similar images of um, of kind of like the destruction that's coming on the nation of Babylon that's been taking uh, uh, Israel into captivity and about the end of exile Revelation will again do the same kind of a thing there's all these pictures. Paul, Paul even borrows from himself, and, and um, we looked at this uh, a little bit ago. Actually, it's, it's weird. Mother's Day, we had like a judgment sermon, too. I don't know if you guys remember that. You probably have not forgotten. Um, so it just, they, it falls when it falls, okay? Um, and, uh, and so it just is one of those things. But on, on, um, in First Thessalonians 4, he talked about the Lord's coming back, and the purpose there was to say, hey, this community is um, grieving. You're like thinking of those that you've lost, that died uh, before the Lord returned, and he's saying, spoke these words about the Lord coming back and us being reunited to him. Talked about the end times as a way of comforting those that were grieving. First Thessalonians 5, which was our Mother's Day sermon, was on the day of the Lord and how he's coming back and how we have to be ready for that. So he's urging them to be ready. This passage, now he comes back and he's speaking to a, um, a, a church that's enduring persecution saying, like, keep going. You can hang in there. You're going to be fine. So he's, he's not trying to answer every question we might have about the end, okay? So he's not trying to tell us exactly, like, who goes where and when and what the afterlife is going to look like. He's not really trying to give us that much detail, although there's a lot of implications. He's trying to speak to this hurt community and, and using all this biblical imagery, trying to speak to them in a way that comforts them and says, hey, it's worth it. Hang on. Keep going with that whole thing. And so there's this picture of flames. Um, I'll, I'll just read for you briefly. This is Isaiah 66. This is where a lot of this comes from. So it speaks of comfort, and then it speaks of judgment as well. As one, who, uh, one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall be, shall be known to his servants. I'm sorry. You shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. He shall show, sow, um, sorry, show his indignation against his enemies. For behold, behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment by a sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. Super intense, super hardcore, but you see all the same imagery. Comfort for God's people that are being oppressed, and um, these pictures of basically the Lord coming in fire, and somehow fire is used in his judgment. Um, in Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 7, there's like the, the Lord's uh, throne is fire. In Revelation, the Lord's eyes are fire, and so it's kind of this purifying uh, type of imagery, and it's all just giving us this big picture of the justice of God when he comes, um, I think ultimately as a warning. Now, who is this warning for? He says in verse 8 uh, that when the Lord comes in this flaming fire, he's going to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not know, uh, not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So who is this for? It's for people that, that, that don't know God and that don't obey the gospel of God. So here's, here's the call and invitation throughout the entire Bible is 
know the Lord, okay? We're called to know him. He, he made us. He loves us, right? We start in the Garden of Eden where people are literally walking with God and they, they have conversations with him and they know him, okay? And throughout, there's these, all these calls to know the Lord, know the Lord, know the Lord, and he's giving us this invitation to have a relationship with him. In the New Testament, there's this invitation of the good news, the gospel, where, where Jesus is saying, I've died so that you don't have to, right? I've laid down my life in love for you so that you can spend eternity with me. You can be healed and forgiven and whole, right? So there's, there's these things, these invitations throughout the whole thing, and this is for those people that look at that and say, no, I don't know what to do with it. Now, this, here's the point. He's saying, this is what this warning is for. This is the one test. Do you know God, and have you obeyed the gospel? That's the one test that matters in everything. And I'm struck by how much we spend our lives worried about so many other things. And I think Paul would say, this is the only thing that you should be concerned about. This is the only test that even matters. Everything else, when you think of, what do my friends think about me? What, is my, what, what about the approval of my father or my mother? Like, how do they feel about me? What, am, I, am I succeeding in my career or whatever? How do my kids view me? Any of those things ultimately are secondary, uh, tertiary, like whatever other areas you get down below that. They're, they're insignificant compared to this one test and it is simply this. Do you know God? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you heard that gospel? Have you responded to it? That is what matters the most. N.T. Wright used an example like this. He said, uh, imagine you go into uh, a doctor, doctor's visit for a doctor's appointment. When you first get there, you talk to the receptionist. She gives you a little uh, test to fill out, right? Questionnaire. Um, do you have a fever? You know, do you drink too much? And, you know, all those kinds of questions. Yeah. So imagine just you do that and you think, okay, all right, there's my doctor's exam. I'm done. And you set it down and you walk out, right? No, that's not the test that matters, right? The test that matters is when you go in and your doctor evaluates you. And he's saying, this is so much like us. We fall for all these little tests, all these little, you know, worries about what anyone else thinks, about how we're succeeding, about what will my life matter. And over here, God's saying, no, 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 the real test is this. Do you know me? I, I, I know you. I want to know. I want you to know me. Like, do you know God? And have you obeyed? Have you responded to that gospel, that good news? I, I, love, I love the idea that the picture is not... Have you obeyed my law, right? Have you obeyed my rules? No, it's have you obeyed the gospel? Have you obeyed the good news? The good news is announced. Do we respond to it with our allegiance and, um, and listen to what God's calling us to? So the, the point in all this is God is a just God. And, and, and again, back to it, I think we need God to be just. There's a theologian uh, named Frederick Bauerschmidt, and he, um, he says basically the idea of God's wrath is really offensive to us as long as we are holding the perspective of those who are in control. So if, we, if we're in control and we're running things, then the idea of God's wrath is really uncomfortable and offensive to us. But he says, if we can take on the perspective of those who are being oppressed, the smaller community, then we begin to see God's justice becomes no longer offensive, it becomes comforting, right? Because we see, okay, I cannot achieve justice on my own, I need help, and there is a God who is above it all. And so if we can abandon the view of those in control, and instead take on the, the, the perspective of the oppressed, which is literally the context of this. A little church community that's being oppressed, then we begin to see, okay, God's mercy and judgment actually work side by side. Um, my kids um, are, are old and amazing now. They're, they're t 12 and 10, and they're awesome. They were like in like this perfect stage before the teen years where it's going to get rough, I know. But in this, this moment, we're good. And when they were younger, um, we, we were like, we're like monsters as parents, so we would like do things like, hey, you got to eat some vegetables, you know? And, um, or like, or like you got to eat any food at all, right? And our kids are like, no, you know, just like they, 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 they wouldn't do it, you know? Like, like pizza, pizza, eat, eat some pizza, like no, you know? And it's just like, 
how can I force my kids to eat? They get so angry. Or like, you know, things like rules that we have around the house, like you can't hit your sister, you know? So they'd hit, and okay, you're in a timeout. Like, no, it's just so unjust to them. And they were so angry. And, I, and I, the reality is the anger of my kids over these things doesn't mean that our rules weren't good, right? We were trying to create a loving environment where they could like flourish and enjoy each other and enjoy our family and like survive, you know, like literally eat food and live, you know? And um, those were our rules, but they would get so angry over the injustice of our rules, and I, I'm struck by how similar that must be to us with God, right? And we sit here, and we're just so angry at the idea that God could possibly be a judge over everything else. It just shows how high our, our self-righteous sense of our own justice is. Like, oh boy, my sense of justice is so well attuned that like, when I see God and what he's deciding on, I'm like, no, no, no. Uh, God should have asked me what's just and unjust. No, actually, God knows more. Here's, here's one way I can illustrate this. If I was, like, in court and you guys were, like, my jury and saying, like, is Mark a good enough guy to, to, to get into heaven or whatever, right? I, I feel like I, this is going on a limb, but I feel like you guys would have a hard time condemning me. Like, you guys, I think, like me pretty well and everything else, right? But here's the reality. Uh, I'm terrible. Like, I, I really am terrible. I have, a, like, a dark heart, and I have sinful tendencies, and all this is in me. So I can tell you for sure I deserve to be condemned, right? You guys are probably too nice to do it, but I do deserve that. And the only other person that really knows the depth of that is God himself, right? His sense of justice is so much more strong. And yet in the midst of that, right, he chooses to offer grace, not arbitrarily, but through the means of offering his son. And so all of this um, is just this reminder that at the end of the day, right, um, there's, these, there's this group of people that is aff afflicting the people of God. They're showing love. They're living according to the kingdom, and they're being oppressed. And so it's people that are um, unwilling to let the kingdom of God thrive. They're resisting who God is. And so Paul's saying, don't worry, little community of love. God ultimately will bring justice to all this. Now, what does that look like? Verses 9 and 10, um, he goes on to say it like this. He says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Now, I, so I, I, I feel like I want to say this. I, um, my head is like here with this passage, okay? So all this stuff, logically, injustice, my head is like, yeah, makes sense. I'm good with it. Makes sense. Um, my heart is like harder to bring along in this, you know? Um, the idea of, okay, yeah, it makes logical sense, but man, this breaks my heart when I think of these individual people. And so he here's what Paul is actually saying. So he's saying, look, they're oppressing these people. And so what happens when these people are rejecting God, when they're, when they're like oppressing the community, when they're like refusing to like know God and obey the gospel, like what happens to them? And he basically shows there's a reversal. So in this life, here's this little community and there's the oppressors and they're trying to destroy this little community of faith pressing them, attacking them, making life difficult for them, maybe even killing them. But we don't, we don't know for sure that that was happening in Thessalonica, but it definitely happened in other churches and other places. People are like, I'm going to destroy this community that's trying to live in love for the Lord, right? And so Paul's showing this reversal of like, okay, they're here trying to destroy you, but in the big picture, like in eternity, what's going to happen? They are the ones that are going to be destroyed in eternity. It's, a, it's, a, it's again, it's poetic justice. It's this reversal of this whole thing. And what it does is it takes them away, he says, away from the presence of the Lord. So it pulls them away from God's presence. And, and so the, the beauty is, right, the, 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 um, the justice is a beautiful thing, and whatever, the, it seems so scary, the idea of eternal judgment, eternal, eternal destruction seems really scary. Um, but at the same time, I think the scariest thing he says in this is they will be removed from the presence of the Lord. They won't be able to be with him. See, th throughout all of um, Scripture, there's this theme of, like, 
the, the, like being present with God, like being in his presence. So again, the Garden of Eden, they're there, they're with God, and, and the, the, the huge punishment that comes when humankind sins is they are uh, exiled from the garden, sent out, st- uh, away from the presence of the Lord. Um, Israel was in the promised land, and then when they sin and reject God, they're taken out of the presence of God into exile, and that is this terrible punishment. Jesus talks about how um, I'm the vine, you're the branches, right? Like we find life when we're connected vine to branch like that. And um, what happens when we reject that? There's this pruning that comes, and we're separated from him. And so this idea of separation from God, the, the irony, of course, is that these people that are oppressing this community of faith, um, they don't want to be in God's presence. They don't want it now, and, and so they won't want it then. And, and he's saying, yeah, that's what's going to happen, is you will be away from God's presence, and be careful what you wish for, is basically what he's saying. So, again, my heart's not all the way here. I, I feel, it feels harsh to me, but then I think... Um, I think of this. There is, there is that idea of poetic justice. So have you, have you read the, the story of, of Haman? Um, so in the Old Testament, the book of Esther, there's Haman who's like this, um, like Esther and the Jews are in, um, in the, the court of uh, King Artaxerxes and all this kind of stuff. And so they're there, and um, this guy Haman is like really against the Jewish people and against Esther, and mo- mostly he's against Mordecai, this, this like um, Jewish leader. And, um, and so Mordecai, or uh, Haman, builds a gallows, right? And he's going to oppress this Jewish community, and he's using it to kind of for his own fame and for his own glory and his own riches and his own benefit. And he's got this gallows that he's going to destroy God's people uh, with. And what happens in the story is actually what happens. Haman gets hanged on his own gallows, right? And I read that story, and to me, I'll just be honest, that story is super satisfying for me. Because you read it, and you just see how evil he is and how plotting, and he creates this gallows that he's going to destroy. And it's like, nope, this is what happens. Poetic justice. He himself is destroyed, and the, the people he was trying to destroy get exalted. Now, I feel really satisfied with that, that concept, and that's exactly, I think, what's happening in this passage. It's showing a poetic reversal. It's saying, like, like what, it, what it's not saying. Here, this is, I think, important to say. What it's not saying is that there's people in this world that commit certain kinds of sins that are so taboo that they, that they like, go to um, eternal destruction, okay? Like, that's, that's actually not what it's saying. There, there's, like, literally any sin you can imagine someone has committed and been forgiven by the Lord for that sin, right? And we're going to see and spend eternity in heaven with them. Some of the worst murderers and, and serial killers in the world have repented in prison, and they will be with us in heaven. Like, I believe that theologically is true. So it's not talking about, oh, if you've committed this particular sin, then you're in big trouble. No, it's not saying that. It's also not talking about people that have doubts uh, with their faith, right? So if you're sitting here and you're like, man, I mean, I think I believe, I think I love Jesus, but there's days where I just, I don't know, and, and this is hard for me, and, and my doubts, I don't think that's what it's talking about. It's talking about people that are ter- putting themselves, uh, like, seeing the offer of knowing God and, and seeing the offer of eternal life and saying, I want nothing to do with that. Yeah, yes, I can hear you say that Jesus died for my sins, but I'm going to handle it on my own, and I don't want anything to do with that. I, I feel like when I step back and I think, okay, what do you do when eternal life is the gift that you're being offered? And you say, no, I do not want eternal life. Uh, then it makes sense to say, what's the alternative? It's eternal destruction, right? And I think that is the, the, um, the sense of justice that we ultimately get through this whole thing. And it's hard for us, but I, I, you know, I was struck, I'll, I'll just... We're already in controversial waters, so I'll just keep going here with some more stuff. Um, over the last couple of years, we've watched the Black Lives Matter movement, right? Just like wanting justice, right? Th- simultaneously, we had the Blue Lives Matter movement, right? And, and it's like the only thing those two groups agreed on was that we need justice, right? But what they disagree on is um, who is or isn't receiving justice and who gets to decide what justice is and how it should be administered, right? There's this sense of we want there to be justice, but we, we disagree on what that is, and I... 
I guess all I'm saying is it feels wild to me um, that we find it distasteful to think that God is the one that could accurately decide what justice is. And, and so this is, I think, where we come back and we just say, okay, there is this reversal, there's this refusal, there's this idea that, man, um, when the Lord comes back, those that have been oppressing, those that have been trying to destroy, they will themselves be destroyed. Those that have been hanging on, those who have been clinging to this community of love and to this life in Jesus, what does it say they're going to experience? It says it in verse, um, verse 10, that when he comes back, on that day he's going to be glorified in his saints and marveled at among all who have believed because our, our testimony to you was believed. So the picture is that we're going to, you know, one day the reversal happens, right? And one day, man, what we're going to do is spend eternity just like glorifying the Lord and marveling at him. And I love that picture. I love that thought of that's what we'll be doing is just marveling at who he is, like getting to know Jesus, getting to know God the Father, getting to know the Holy Spirit better and better and better and just being like in awe of how good and how amazing. And if that sounds terrible to you, boring and lame, then eternity is going to be kind of boring and lame and terrible, right? Um, because that is what we're being invited into to do is this relationship with him. And so we're going to be doing that forever. That's why we do things like worship now, right? Because we're marveling at him ahead of time. And John, John Piper said it like this. He has a great book called God is the Gospel. And he says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven? Here's the, the key point. If Christ were not there. I love that reminder because heaven is not going to be just about paradise where you get all of the pina coladas you could ever dream of, right? It is going to be paradise <laughs> with Jesus, right? And, and so if we're not excited to be with Jesus, then he's like, if you could be satisfied with heaven with Jesus not there, he's like, it's not going to feel like heaven to you because that is the point of it all. And so anyways, the invitation is to embrace him, to know him. Again, back to the, the point. What, what is the criteria? What is the one test? Do you know him and do you obey the gospel? Not obey the law, but obey the gospel. See the good news that he offers to us. I'm going to close with this. Paul, Paul leaves us with this prayer. Um, he says, to this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So I think if we, if we zoom back out again, okay, and we think of the big picture of this, because this is what I think. This is a hard passage. I, I wouldn't have, if I was writing 2 Thessalonians, I would not have written this section in there, right? I would have I cleaned it up a lot, way happier, way more Mr. Rogers vibes throughout the whole thing. But I have to believe that God wrote it for a reason, right? And so I, I step back and I think, okay, what, is the, what is the purpose, what is the reason um, th that he wrote this? And I, I, think it, I think it comes down to this. Here's a little community, and he says, man, you're like, you're considered worthy of the kingdom of God, okay? So they're trying to live according to the kingdom of God, and in doing that, right, trying to live according to the kingdom of God, the, the best way I can describe what the kingdom of God is, is Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, um, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the idea of God's kingdom coming looks like the will of God, which is perfectly done in heaven, 
also being done on earth. So anywhere we live and, the, and the, the will of God is being done amongst us, that's like the kingdom of God that's here. And so in that picture of, of all that, right, this group of people that are living according to the kingdom, he's saying you're, you're worthy of the kingdom of God. And so they're doing that and it puts them at, out of sync with the world around them, right? It puts them at odds. That's why they're being persecuted. I think for us, it, it looks like, yeah, we're out of sync. Like our, our, our ethics, our morals seem kind of old-fashioned to everyone else around us, right? Um, we, we try to be peacemakers when the world around us is trying to dominate and control and, and everything else. Um, all these things, we, we, we reach out and love into the, to the people that the world cancels and neglects and doesn't care about. All these things put us out of sync. And so here's this community that's doing that, and they're out of sync with their society. They're being persecuted. And so I think Paul writes these words to look at them and saying, hey, you're living according to the kingdom, and you're probably wondering, is it worth it? If I'm, if I'm living in love and I'm living all these kingdom values here— and, and meanwhile, everyone's just going to attack us all the time, and we're, we're going to be killed and, and arrested and persecuted all the time. Is it worth it? And Paul's saying, yes, it is worth it. The kingdom of God matters. You living in love with each other matters. This is always the most important thing, and one day, God's going to fix it all. One day, there's going to be the reversal, but, but in the meantime, it is worth it. And so he's encouraging them, stick with it, um, hold on tight. And I think, I think that for me, um, what's so important is to recognize but the reason Paul writes words like these, like, like sometimes we've preached these sermons with like a lot of relish, I think. Preachers in the past definitely did the like sin- sinners in the hands of an angry God kind of a thing. And we're like, yes, like hellfire is coming. And I think um, that is 100% the wrong posture. I think Paul explains it to say, hey, this is, this is reality. God is just. Like you, you don't want, but the whole point is it's a warning, right? And a warning, a warning is an invitation. That's really what a warning is. It's an invitation to avoid a certain outcome and to embrace another. And so I love the way he ends with this prayer, just saying like, man, we're praying for you. God, make you worthy of his calling. God's called you into this. And we're praying like, God, make them worthy of it. And, and there's this invitation to just like see who God really is. Um, to live in his kingdom, to experience the grace of God. In in verse 12, he says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. I mean, this beautiful picture of he wants Jesus uh, to be glorified in us. Like, that's an amazing thing. Like, we live our lives in such a way that it points to who God is. And so he's glorified in us, but he also says the opposite, and you in him, meaning we're to be glorified somehow in Christ as well. There's this connection that we have where we get to embrace and experience this beautiful relationship with God. That is the point of this whole passage. Uh, live now so as to spend your life in eternity with him. Uh, live life now to have this eternal life with him, and it is on offer. It is an invitation, and it's a warning, which is just an invitation for us just to embrace it. Um, God says in Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, it says, I, I, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Like he, he doesn't want that. That's not what he's inviting us into. It's not what he wants for us, but he's saying, ultimately, I'm a just God, and this is what I'm inviting you to, is to be with me. So there's that. Next week, I'm just going to tell you, it gets even crazier, so come back for sure. <laughs> um, and let's, uh, let's just pray as we reflect. Lord Jesus, thank you so much um, for a passage like this. I, I feel like I can truly um, say that, uh, even though this was a, a hard week, a weird week for me of wrestling with something that... Um, as I said, this doesn't really sit um, naturally with me. But Lord, thank you that you know so much better than I do. Thank you, Lord, that your heart is, I believe, ultimately beautiful and good and just and loving all at the same time. Lord, thank you for the reminders that you give us. Thank you for the invitation that is here. And so, Lord, I I just pray for this family here, um, this group of people that have been living according to the kingdom. Lord, I I believe that's true. I I see and I experience your kingdom here with this group of people. 
And I pray that as we're here this morning, I pray that your words would hit us in exactly the way that it needs to. Lord, for each person here that is just feeling that um, kind of beat down by society, feeling that um, pull to kind of give in or give up, I pray that we would be reminded from this of your ultimate justice and the big picture, Lord, the fact that you, we can be forgiving and gracious because ultimately, Lord, you have your eye on the big picture. Thank you for that. I pray for those of us here that are kind of wrestling with the tension of um, not knowing how all this fits together, not knowing how it all works. Lord, would you just continue to speak to us in the passages that are ahead in our own Bible reading, in our own prayer times with you? Would you continue to speak to us? Lord, help us to see who you are truly. Help everything that we say or think or teach that doesn't align with who you really are. May those things fall away and may we come closer and closer to your true heart. And Lord, I just pray for um, the person here this morning that is, um, really doesn't know where they stand with you or um, coming in feeling like I just, I haven't wanted anything to do with the Lord. And uh, Lord, I just pray for that person. Lord, may, may, may he and she hear this warning and just see you for who you really are. Lord, that, that, is, that is what I want. I, I, I don't want to uh, apologize for you. I don't want to um, sugarcoat who you are. I just want all of us here to come to meet you face to face and then to make that decision that we all have to make. And so, Lord, would you um, move and would you nudge and would you help us to process this um, in light of who you are? Lord, you are so good. You are so good. Thank you that you invite us into this eternity in your presence, um, glorifying you and being glorified in you. What a beautiful picture. May we experience that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.